0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's continue with our study of Matthew, starting with chapter 3, verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying... Now, who is this John the Baptist? Well, he was born somewhere around 5 to 7 B.C., about six months older than Jesus. His father was Zechariah. His mother was Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. You can learn all about the details of his life in Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 through 80. His name, John, means gracious, or by the grace of the Lord. His name was given to him by an angel before his conception, and his parents obeyed the angel and named him John, contrary to the wishes of his relations and neighbors. So he was gracious, graced by the grace of the Lord. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 13 says this, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. So from the very beginning of John's beginning, beginnings, John was uh, especially marked out by God to carry out a great work, a great ministry. His name, as I said, means the Lord is gracious or just gracious or by the grace and mercy of Jehovah. Now he went about preaching. Isn't that an unusual life? He started out his life preaching in the wilderness of Judea. That was what he did. That was his job. Preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Well, the question is how did you preach in the wilderness? Was he preaching to trees? Was he preaching to stumps? Well, no, because the wilderness of Judea consisted of a, a stretch about 20 miles from Jerusalem to the uh, Jordan River, it was about 20 miles away to the east and to the south, Bethlehem's four or five miles, and, that's, and that area is on a plateau, and it's nothing but wilderness. I've been on it before, you drive up on a bus, we, we were on a bus on a tour coming up from the Jordan River, and the bus hardly got out of third gear, it was barely making it up the hill. So it really is on a plateau up there, and also as you looked out the window of the bus, it looked less like a wilderness, a desert, looked like the Wild West in America. But John was not living out there in the Wild West all the time. I mean, Judea was inhabited by towns and villages and cities, and uh, John would retire from wherever he was. Maybe he was in a village or something. He would go out into the wilderness, and then the people would follow him out there. So there was plenty of people out there in this wilderness to listen to, not just trees and stumps. Jesus, while this was going on, by the way, Jesus was up in his hometown of Nazareth, growing up as a carpenter's son in Nazareth. So, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, Matthew says this, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, that word, repent, is a key word in the New Testament. My NIV study Bible says it means to make a radical change in one's life. Adam Clark says it means a total change in conduct. So, this idea of repentance was not in the mind of the Jews who went out there. When they're thinking Messiah, they might have thought that John the Baptist was Messiah, and I'll talk about later why he was such a strange phenomenon out there in the desert. But those Jews that went out there, they were, they were expecting a military Messiah. Somebody's going to supernaturally lead an army to get us free from the yoke of the Romans. But instead, John the Baptist says, repent. Repent? Repent Is the Greek comes from the Greek word metanoeo, which literally means a change of mind. Meta, change, noeo, mind. A change of mind. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown define that this way, quote, here and wherever it, wherever it is used in connection with salvation, primarily to that sense of sin which leads the sinner to flee from the wrath to come, to look for relief only from above, and eagerly to fall in with the provided remedy. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a mental thing. Yes, you do believe in God, and you believe in his righteousness, and you, and you do change your mind, but you change your mind about your conduct. You do as well as believe. Now, this is an interesting thing because repentance is, is hooked up with belief in the gospel all the way through the New Testament. This is something a lot of people don't realize. Uh, belief is obviously there. You believe, you trust in God, but also you repent. You change your conduct. Now, this, and, and, of course, there have been lots and lots of theological controversies over where, what is actually necessary to get saved the old lordship salvation controversy, which I won't get into. However, I can say this, faith and repentance clearly, as in, I'll show you a verse in Acts chapter 26, where Paul talks about repentance and the deeds that are associated with repentance are necessary to believe. So we know that faith and repentance are part of salvation. Now, obedience, you start putting that in there, and now you're starting to fudge, uh, you're starting to get into works righteousness, because now you're bringing in one sanctification. you got to be sanctified in order to believe, well, nobody's sanctified in order to believe. So obedience is not a part of salvation but repentance is a change of mind a change in one's conduct now John says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand at hand means close close by temporarily close by uh, so um, before we talk about that though we got to, to talk about what is this kingdom of heaven that is close at hand well kingdom of heaven is a phrase that's only found in Matthew it occurs 33 times and, and the kingdom of God is used four times. The old dispensationalists used to say there's a different thing here. The kingdom of heaven is the Jewish kingdom, and the kingdom of God is the Christian kingdom, and they're separate, and the never the twain shall meet. That is nonsense. And in fact, most progressive dispensationalists, if not all, don't make that distinction because you, because you cannot make that distinction scripturally. The kingdom of God is the same thing as the kingdom of heaven. In my YouTube videos on dispensationalism, I have the verses where the the, the two phrases are used in the same passage showing that they're the same thing. Well, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is where a king rules. Well, God, if it's the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom where God rules. Where does God rule? Well, he rules wherever people obey his his commands. And that would include heaven where there are where there are departed saints and where there are angels. And also on earth where there are living saints. Well, now when John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he cannot mean uh, the kingdom of heaven that's in heaven, where you have angels and departed saints. He's talking about the kingdom of God on earth. So more precisely, what is meant here? He's saying, for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven on earth, is at hand. It's coming close. It's coming real soon. Of course, the soon was when Jesus started his ministry. Shortly thereafter. All right. Uh, let's go to Matthew chapter three, verse three. Matthew continues referring to john the baptist for this is the one referred to by isaiah the prophet when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the lord make his paths straight the verse that matthew is quoting from is isaiah 40 verse 3. isaiah says this a voice is calling clear the way for the lord in the wilderness make smooth in the desert a highway for our god isaiah chapter 40 is a chapter of prophecy about the messiah And this particular verse here, this particular prophecy that Matthew quotes, is quoted in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This shows how central and outstanding that prophecy was. It was a link between the Old and the New Covenants. Um, It says crying. Matthew says that John the Baptist was crying in the wilderness. Crying means to speak out openly, publicly, freely, not silently. John the Baptist preached with a great deal of fervency. So uh, he's saying big news things are happening here. There's something happening in salvation history that will knock your socks off. And the people came out to see that. Now, when he says, make ready, uh, when uh, he quotes Isaiah as saying that the voice crying, John the Baptist crying in the wilderness to make ready the way of the Lord, what did he mean by make ready? What was he referring to? Well, he was referring to the practice of Eastern monarchs who were preparing to go on a journey. Now, these Eastern kings would send messengers before them to prepare all things for the passages. For example, to open all the passes that were guarded, uh, maybe in the mountain passes, to level the road if there were impediments in the road so that their ancient transportation methods could get through. To basically to remove all impediments so the king could make his triumphal journey through his realm. Today we would say advance men, you know, make sure there are no terrorists there on the road, block off the roads, fix the stoplights so they don't turn on and off, that kind of thing. Get ready for the king. Or get ready for the president in our case. Get ready for the king in their case. And, of course, the king was Jesus. So Jesus, from the very beginning, he was not only a prophet, he was not only a priest, but he was a king. We go to verses 4 and 5 in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew says this, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. John the Baptist is eating a locust, and you might think locust is disgusting, nasty. Well, actually, it was a Levitically clean food, as Leviticus chapter 11 plainly says. It said you can eat grasshoppers, no problem. Although it was uh, ritually clean, it was not exactly, in my mind, appetizing. I know everybody has their own taste about food, especially across cultures, but basically this was very sparse food he's eating, and he's eating wild honey. He would go out to a tree and dip some honey out. That's not not exactly eating steak and potatoes. The sparse eating habits and also his clothes, which were camel's hair and a leather belt, not exactly your stylist type of duds that he's wearing, uh, they were all a visual protest against self-indulgence. My NIV study Bible says, I like that, a visual protest against self-indulgence because there was a lot of Sadducees and Pharisees living high off the hog in Jerusalem at the time, as people in the elite normally do. I just read that French President Macron had uh, his bill for his monthly hairdressing bill is 10,000 euros. I would say that's over about $11,000 maybe. $10,000, $11,000 a month to cut somebody's hair? <clears throat> well, no wonder there's a populist revolt in Europe. Okay, so this is John the Baptist out there. He's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. Now, let's talk about that. Why was he wearing a camel's hair? Because... He was wearing a a uniform, basically, a prophet's uniform. Nurses wear white, policemen wear blue uniforms, and prophets wore hairy garments with leather tied around them. Let's see how that's true in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 4. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. So if you wanted to be a false prophet, you just put on a hairy robe, and everybody would think you were a prophet, because that was the uniform of the prophet. 2 Kings 1.8 says this. They answered him... He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins, and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Basically, Elijah is referred to as somebody that was hairy. There, he was hairy, probably because he was wearing a hairy robe, and he had a leather gir- girdle around the the robe. And so John the Baptist looks like Elijah looked like. Well, that's, that's interesting, is it not? Because later on, Jesus identifies specifically John the Baptist with Elijah. He said he is Elijah. And so... You you wonder here whether John the Baptist was not intentionally imitating Elijah, who was hairy with a leather girdle, and so John the Baptist was hairy because he was wearing a hairy garment with a hairy girdle. I suspect very strongly that he was, because he was the fulfillment of that prophecy about Elijah in Isaiah 40, that Elijah was going to come, that there was going to be a voice in the wilderness. I don't know if it says Elijah right. I think that's where uh, the prophecy says Elijah is coming somewhere in Isaiah 40. But if it's not in Isaiah 40, it's somewhere else that uh, was prophesied that Elijah was coming and, and John the Baptist is specifically identifying himself with Elijah. So here's this, let's just say this new Elijah is out in the desert preaching and all Judea was interested in coming out to see him. Now, first of all, let's talk about that word all I remember when I was in the charismatic movement in college, I would always hear, all always means all. So when it says that Jesus healed all, it meant he healed every single person. Well, as a matter of fact, that's not what it means. Now, he might, Jesus might have healed all every single person, I don't know, but that word, word doesn't prove it. Because you look it up in a Greek dictionary, and this is a lexicon, it's easy to do. All has three meanings, basically. All, it can mean many, a lots of. And that's what it means here. And all Judea means a lot of Judea, not every single person in Judea. The second meaning of all, it can mean every person without exception. In other words, every last single one of Judea came out. It could mean that. I don't think it does here. The third meaning can be all uh, without distinction. For example, God saves all men, all Jews, all Gentiles, all free, all slaves, all Singaporeans, all Japanese, all Hawaiians, all Americans, all Chinese, that kind of thing, all without distinction. Here it's very many. So very many of the people coming out into Judea, and uh to see him now what drew the people out there to see this guy well for one thing he looked weird as a, his dress was odd not everybody wore camel's hair and leather belts his life was austere he was eating locust and wild honey and mainly his message was awful repent repent yeah, quit sinning yeah, nobody likes to hear that but uh they come out to hear it anyway because nobody was preaching repentance at that time and also remember that the talk of the Messiah was around John the Baptist the, the events around John the Baptist's birth about 30 years earlier had been very messianic like and, and and Anna and Simeon in the temple were talking about Jesus the Messiah being born the Messiah is here and the word was spread uh, doesn't it doesn't say that Anna and Simeon talked to everybody. It said they talked to everybody that, that believed, that were looking for the Messiah. But there was, a, there was a subset of the population that really thought the Messiah was here somewhere. And for 30 years, he disappeared. Where is this baby? Where is this Messiah? Oh, he showed up in the desert? This must be him. So uh, they thought he might be the Messiah. But even if he wasn't the Messiah, he was at least a prophet. And the prophet hadn't been heard in Israel for hundreds of years, 400 years. And so at the worst, they were going out there to see a... A very strange and unusual prophet. And at the best, he might even be the Messiah. All right, so we go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 6. And they, that means the people that went out to see John the Baptist, were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. They confessed their sins maybe to God, but I think they probably confessed their sins orally to John the Baptist and everybody else around who could hear. Now, the interesting question is, is, why were they being baptized? Well, the Jews had baptism, they had ablutions, you know, washings in water, the, uh, the, the high priest, for example, had to be washed in water before they got to be a high priest, and so um, this was not an unusual thing, as far as the, uh, the Jewish Levitical uh, cultus is not a problem, but Normally, it was only Gentiles who were baptized when they became converts into the Jewish faith. But for Jews themselves to be baptized was probably a little bit unusual. But everybody un- understood the symbolism, because when you're, you're plunged into water, you're washed clean. And the symbolism is you're washed clean of your sins after you repent. So this, And this, of course, should not be confused with Christian baptism. The church had not been started yet. You can't have Christian baptism until you have the church. Jesus had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit He had not started his ministry, he had not died, he had not resurrected, he had not sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We were long before that. But nonetheless, the symbolism is clear. Now, the Jordan River, of course, runs from the Sea of Galilee in the north all the way down to the Dead Sea in the south. Today, they've dammed up the Sea of Galilee to provide water for the nation of Israel, and the Jordan River looks like a little creek runs by my property here. It's not very much. But back then, I'm sure it was a full river, full of water. And uh, as they were baptized he, the, here, I've already told you the significance of it, being cleansed of their sins. But I'm going to get off on a little side trail, side uh, point here, a little rabbit trail. What is, was the mode of that baptism? Were, was John walking the Penitence into the river and then ladling out water with a jar or something and pouring it over their head? Was he baptizing by pouring or was he baptizing by immersion, by taking them and plunging them, dipping them into the water so that the water covered their, their heads? Well, I think there's no question that he plunged them into the river till the water was covering their heads. But let's look at some arguments for the idea that he might have poured the water. You know, know, people love to argue this, especially Presbyterians and Baptists. They could spend an eternity arguing this in heaven. They probably will be. Well, if we get in heaven, you're going to see Presbyterians and Baptists arguing over, how do we baptize people down there on earth? What was the right way? Well, pouring, we're going to look at the two options, dunking or immersion or pouring. I'll just call it dunking or pouring. And uh, we could say pouring is actually just uh, uh, an advanced form of sprinkling, because sprinkling is like pouring light. You don't you don't pour, you sprinkle. But uh, you know, we'll just say pouring here to keep it simple. Now, first of all, in favor of, of immersion is the fact that the word is used. The two words that are used for baptism in the New Testament are baptō and baptizo, and they both mean to immerse. So you look it up in a lexicon. It means like, for example, you take a piece of cloth, you dip it into the dye. The cloth comes out, it's completely changed colors. Why? Because it was completely covered with the dye. It was immersed. And that's what the word means. But nonetheless, people are just bound and determined to say, no, it doesn't really mean that. Well, here's some arguments for the pouring position. It's impossible, say these advocates, the pouring advocates, it's impossible for John to dip to immerse all of Judea. There are too many people. Well, now, really, does it really take that much more time to dip somebody into the water than pour them? You just take their heads, punch them under the water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son. Well, not, you wouldn't say that because this is a repentance baptism. I baptize you, boom, pick them up, get the next guy. I baptize you, plunge, pick them up. If you ask me, that's quicker than having to go down. Dip something into the water and pour the water over your head. Which one's quicker? Immersion's quicker, not pouring. So that's a dumb argument. Here's another good one for the, by the pro-pouring advocates. It's not safe to dip women, to dunk women. Really, women were really that much worse swimmers back then than men were. Believe that. And besides, you're not dunking them over their head. You know, it's, you don't never, you never baptize anybody in water where the water's over your head. You couldn't do it. That's, that's a dumb argument. Here's a good one. Say the pro-pouring advocates, it's not modest for women to be baptized by dunking them. We've got to stand them up and pour water over their heads to preserve their modesty. Really? With all the clothes that women wore back then? You look at, at least from all the movies I've seen, I assume that they're culturally appropriate, all the women wore these long flowing robes. They could be stay warm in the backside of Siberia in January with all the clothes they had on. How could that not be modest? I never saw a a Middle Eastern woman that was dressed immodestly. You have to go to America and Russia to see that. So I think that's a dumb argument. Here's another, this argument, I finally found the strongest argument for pouring. They went out there, they, the first crowd at least was not expecting to be baptized, they, then they heard John's message and they realized they were going to be baptized. Well, they didn't bring a change of clothes because they didn't expect back to be baptized, and it was cold, and if they'd have been baptized and immersed in water, in that cold water, they would have come out and they would have caught pneumonia and gotten sick. So John had to pour to keep them from getting sick. Well, here's the problem with that. First of all, who said they were baptized in the winter? That's a warm climate. If it was in the spring of the summer or the fall, it might have been perfectly fine to be baptized without getting cold. Here's another thing, too. Uh, The people that were getting baptized, that went out to hear John, they might have known that baptism was going on because the word would have spread. And so maybe the first group of people going out there might not have known John was going to baptize them, but the rest of them coming out there would know, and they could have brought clothes with them. So, and besides. Uh, well, you know, it, if it was winter, it would be too cold to baptize. 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, Jerusalem is in the winter. But Jerusalem's colder than the Jordan River because it's up on a plateau, so it'd even be warmer than that. So you're talking about most of the year, I think, there's plenty warm enough to get plunged, immersed into the water. So he was. Pl- so we're going to put a picture in our heads of John the Baptist pushing people completely under the water, not sprinkling and not pouring. Now, having said that, it really is the thing signified and not the mode, which is the essential part of the sacrament, as Adam Clark said. So the thing signified was repentance and cleansing from sin and the fact that they need to deliver from their sin. Yeah, that's true. I, I admit that. But what best signifies that essential thing? Immersion, where you're completely clean, or pouring, where you're just a little bit clean. I'll leave that to your considered judgment. All right, now let's go to chapter, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Before we talk about who the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, they were very bad people. and I'm going to show you why in just a minute. Let's see. Let's talk about what John the Baptist was warning them from. He said, You snakes. So somebody, you're coming out here in the wilderness because you know that there's wrath coming. Now, of course, John John the Baptist is being sarcastic here. He knows that they don't think that wrath is coming. They're not intending to repent. So he's speaking very ironically here. Oh, somebody warned you to flee from the wrath to come, huh? But he doesn't really mean it directly. He means it ironically because he knows that they're not fleeing from the wrath to come. But what John the Baptist wants to get in their heads is, there's wrath coming to you guys. You Pharisees and Sadducees are going down. Question is, is when? Well, the wrath to come. There's two schools of thought on that. One group of people thinks that the wrath to come is talking about the general resurrection and judgment at the end of time. In other words, who told you to come out here and escape hell by getting baptism? Nobody told you because you don't intend to, but you're going to go to hell. Well, that's the way I've always taken it until recently. Uh, John Gill and Adam Clark both say no, that's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070, and since that warms my orthodox preterist heart, I agree with Adam Clark and John Gill that the wrath to come that John the Baptist is talking about here is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were Jerusalem. They were, the two ma- they were like Democrats and Republicans in America. They were the two main parties that kept that system going. The rabbinic apostate Judaism that killed Jesus and, and killed the prophets, that's who kept it going. And they were going to be destroyed. Now, you know, talking about wrath to come, thousands, it hadn't come yet. This was 2,000 years counting, and we still haven't experienced that wrath because uh, the end of time hasn't come yet. So I think, you know, that's not much of a prophecy, is it? The, the wrath to come, that's not really going to affect the Pharisees and Saddu- Sadducees too much then. But eighty seventy was just 40 years away, and he says, Hey, guys, enjoy your time because you're going down 40 years from now the wrath to come in my humble opinion that's what John the Baptist was talking about now let's look and see why he thought the Pharisees and Sadducees deserved this wrath to come um, let's start with the Pharisees general characteristics they were legalistic and they were separatist those are two words you need to remember when you hear Pharisees legalistic and separatist the word pharisee possibly comes from the word which means divide to make a breach Uh, In other words, to be separate, Uh, a minority of scholars say it comes from the word pharos, which means to expand, to stretch out, because they made broad, their phylacteries, their little scripture boxes they wore on their wrist and and their foreheads, and they enlarged, they spread out, they stretched out the hems of their garments so that everybody would say, hey, that's a Pharisee walking down the street, and he knows the Bible better than you do, and the traditions of men. They were a group of they were scholars, they were not political people. but however, sometimes they did meddle with the affairs of government by saying, "You shouldn't be doing that because the scriptures say." So they were kind of like degraded prophets. And the government usually uh, hated them. They dreaded them, and they didn't love them at all, according to John Gill, which doesn't surprise me. The Sadducees were mainly in the government. The Pharisees were not. They hated each other, Pharisees and the Sadducees, just like Democrats and Republicans. The uh, Pharisees strictly kept the law of Moses, but also the traditions of the elders. And in fact, I would say especially the traditions of the elders. And this had generated into often hypocritical observance. So you're not supposed to um, give money. To your parents because you owe it to the temple and that kind of nonsense. You swear by the gold of the temple, but you don't swear by the temple. You're allowed to walk a certain number of steps outside of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and after that, it's considered work. All of this stupid. You can't throw a apricot pit over the headboard of your bed because that's a law. All this nonsense. That was Pharisees. Okay. Now let me give you a a definition of the Pharisees from Easton's Illustrated Dictionary. They were separatist, as I said. They were probably the successors of the Assyrians, uh, who were the so-called, quote-unquote, the pious, which was a party that originated in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in revolt against his heathenizing policy. Antiochus Epiphanes is somebody you should know about, about 168, 169, 168. I think he went through Jerusalem twice. There's a scholarly debate about the times and, and how many times he went through Jerusalem, but he, he sacrificed a pig on the altar and did, killed a bunch of Jews. He was, he was a horrible guy. And uh, he was from the Greek Empire, the Seleucid Empire, the Syrian Empire, which was Greek. And he heathenized. He hate, he hate, he loved pagan Greek religion, and he hated the Jewish religion, okay? So there was a revolt against that. And so these Assyrians, as this dictionary calls them, the Assyrians, the, the, the uh, party, the, the Maccabees were their forerunners, you know, the who, the freedom fighters. And then this party of pious people, the pious people in Jerusalem, were fighting the nasty Greeks, so they started out with good, and, you know, good people. The first mention of them is in a description by Josephus, the famous uh, Jewish-Roman Jewish and Roman historian. The first mention of, the, of them is in a description by Josephus of the three sects or schools into which the Jews were divided. He wrote about them in about 145 B.C. The other two sects were the Essenes and the Sadducees. Now, we're not going to talk about the Essenes. Those were the guys that didn't believe in marriage, lived in a white robe, fasted and washed themselves all the time and tried to get holy, living out in the desert. They were the curators, if you will, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can still walk by their holes in the caves in, in Jerusalem if you take a tour right outside of Jerusalem. But we're not going to talk about them because they were a fringe group, kind of like preppers are today in America. They were fringe. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, however, they were Israel. Okay, in the time of our Lord, they were the popular party. They were, the Pharisees were the popular party. The Sadducees were the political party. They were the ones with power, kind of like in today's terms. This is 2018. The Trumpites, the Trumpoids, they are the popular party, whereas the the swamp, as he calls them, The Democrats and the established Republicans, they are the Sadducees in Washington. That's kind of the way it is. However, I must say this, the Pharisees were not popular in the sense that a lot of people liked them because they, they bound up burdens and put them on the people that were such that people couldn't carry them. However, they were extremely accurate and minute in all matters appertaining to the law of Moses. Paul, when brought before the Council of Jerusalem, professed himself a Pharisee. So you see there was still enough good reputation amongst the Pharisees that Paul could identify himself as a Pharisee without uh, shame. However, he was a special form of Pharisee. He wasn't a hypocritical Pharisee. He, he meant all that piety and following the law of Moses. And all. He meant that sincerely and not hypocritically. There was much that was sound in their creed, says Easton's, yet their system of religion was a form and nothing more. I remember going to one of these Jewish messianic, Jewish wannabe type seminars, weekend seminars where everybody is Gentile, but they say they want to be Jewish and they have all, you know, all the Jewish stuff. And I I talked to the secretary of this guy named Joseph Good, who at the time was a broadcaster on Trinity Broadcasting Network all about all things Jewish and how we should be Jewish in order to be Christian. And this woman was telling me about how wonderful the Pharisees were. And I looked at her like she was from another planet. I still, that, that thing shocked me so much. I still remember it 20, 30 years later. Pharisees, they killed Jesus. They weren't good people. They were bad people. They were terrible people. That's why John the Baptist called them snakes. I wish I had the presence of mind to tell that lady, they're snakes. They're not good people. But, you know, I had to be polite, so I just sat there and listened to the nonsense. Theirs was a very lax morality. On the I'm continue, continuing with Easton's. On the first notice of them in the New Testament, they are ranked by our Lord with the Sadducees as a generation of vipers. I think Easton's might be wrong there because we're talking about Matthew three seven. It was John the Baptist who called them a generation of vipers. They were noted for their self righteousness and their pride. They were frequently rebuked by our Lord. Okay. Uh, Adam Clark adds an interesting point about the Pharisees. It says they believed in a confused way in the resurrection, which that's well known. They did believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. However, the Pharisees also received the Pythagorean doctrine of the metempsychosis, which is a fancy Greek word for soul travel or transmigration of souls, reincarnation. How in the world they reconciled resurrection with reincarnation? I do not know. They did believe that nonbelievers were not going to get a chance to soul travel from one body to the next upon death. Because they believed that non believers went straight to hell without transmigration. So the Pharisees did believe in hell. Now let's contrast that with the Sadducees. Their characteristics were this they were worldly, they were political, they were doctrinally deviant. They denied the resurrection of the dead, they denied the existence of angels and demons, they denied the authority, uh, authority of the Old Testament except for the Pentateuch. They denied an afterlife. There's no heaven, there's no hell. They denied God's providential working in affairs. In other words, they were liberal Protestants. That's exact, That's exactly the best way to describe them. Liberal Protestants. Protestants deny everything supernatural, thus earning for themselves a, a deepest place in the spot in, in hell, which they deny. Well, this is what the Sadducees were. Now, let me give you a quote from Easton's Dictionary about the Sadducees. The origin of of this Jewish sect cannot definitely be traced. It was probably the outcome of the influence of Grecian customs and philosophy during the period of Greek domination. It's talking about the Seleucid Empire, uh, which dominated in the intertestamental period. The first time they are met with is in connection with John the Baptist's ministry. They came out to him when on the banks of the Jordan, and he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The next time they are spoken of, they are represented as coming to our Lord, tempting him. He calls them hypocrites and a wicked and adulterous generation. The only reference to them in the Gospels of Mark and Luke is they are attempting to ridicule the doctrine of the resurrection, which they denied as they denied the existence of angels. They are never mentioned in, they are never mentioned in John's Gospel. There were many Sadducees among the elders of the Sanhedrin. The Jewish ruling body. They seem indeed to have been as numerous as the Pharisees. They showed their hatred of Jesus in taking part in his condemnation. That's one time the Pharisees and Sadducees got together trying to kill Jesus. They agreed on that. We've got to get rid of this guy. They endeavored to prohibit the apostles from preaching the resurrection of Christ after Jesus was risen. They were the deists or skeptics of that age. They do not appear as a separate sect after the destruction of Jerusalem. After the destruction of Jerusalem, remember John the Baptist says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? or well, the wrath to come came and wiped out the Sadducees, as well as the Pharisees. Let me tell you what Adam Clark adds on the Sadducees. Interesting stuff here. The Sadducees had their origin and name from one Sadok, a disciple of Antigonus of Socho, a, a teacher I'm not aware I'm not. I don't know this guy. He was president of the Sanhedrin, and he was a teacher of the law in one of the great divinity schools in Jerusalem. This was about 264 years before the Incarnation. This Antigonus of Socho, having often in his lectures informed his informed his scholars that they should not serve God through expectation of a reward, but through love and filial reverence only. Sadoc inferred from this teaching that there were neither rewards nor punishments after this life, and by consequence that there was no resurrection of the dead, nor angel, nor spirit in the invisible world, and that man is to be rewarded or punished here for the good or evil he does. They received only the five books of Moses and rejected all non-written traditions. From every account we have of the sect... It plainly appears they were a kind of mongrel deist. Oh, what a great name, a mongrel deist. Wouldn't that be a great thing to call a liberal Protestant? You are a mongrel deist. And they, prof- and they were professed materialist. Okay, this idea of not receiving rewards and punishments, that's an idea that's floated around a long time. Do we love Jesus just because of what he does for us and but not because he gives us a reward? Well, actually, you're supposed to, really. Uh, the, the Christian mystics uh, would always say that. However, the Christian mystics would always say that However, saying that is one thing, but denying that there are rewards and punishments is completely another thing, because the Scripture plainly tells us there are going to be rewards and punishment. The idea is like Michael Jordan shooting foul shots in a famous commercial, and he was all by himself. There's nobody in the stands, and he says, would I do this if nobody was watching? In other words, would I do this if nobody's watching and nobody's paying me? Yes, I would, because I love basketball so much. I'm not doing it for the reward. And that's why we're supposed to love Jesus. Well, it sounds real pious and holy, but it, you see what happened to it. It turned out into a doctrinal disaster. John the Baptist calls these Sadducees and Pharisees vipers, snakes, because he knew their motives were not pure. They wanted to be seen of men. They were out there participating in the great religious revival. Hey, yes, the spirit's moving, and we're out here. And we're the religious believers, and we're going to take charge of it. They didn't want to repent. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Therefore, says John the Baptist, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So what John the Baptist is saying, look, I don't care if you have Abraham for your father. They were famous for saying that. We're Jews, Pharisees, we're Sadducees. Abraham's our father. And therefore, we can do whatever the heck we want. But salvation is not by birthright; it's through faith in Christ, and it's through repentance, belief in God. In this situation, before Jesus could come, the the uh, the Jews said that to Jesus as well as to John the Baptist. In John chapter eight, verse thirty-nine, they referring to the Jews here said to um, said to him said to Jesus Abraham is our father and Jesus said to them if you are Abraham's children do the deeds of Abraham and John the Baptist says bring forth fruit for repentance don't just tell me your Abraham is your father I want fruit I don't want a genealogy now what does he mean that God is able to raise up stones raise up children to Abraham from these stones he's basically he's he's denigrating by comparison there's nothing wrong with Abraham of course nothing wrong with being children of Abraham but he's denigrating the people who falsely claim to be children of Abraham just because they are physically or genetically or racially or culturally a descendant of Abraham, but they're not spiritually descendants of Abraham. And so he basically what he's saying is, you Pharisees and Sadducees are as worthless as rocks. I mean, you you talk to me about children of Abraham. Hey, God wants children of Abraham. He can get something out of these rocks. You you're not worth these rocks. We can get we can get children from rocks. So why are you bragging so much about being children of Abraham? And I think that's what he meant. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown have got an interesting idea here. They say that John was referring to the Gentiles that God was going to raise up his children of children of Abraham in the church later on. Because, you know, in Romans chapter 4, Paul says that uh, you, referring to Gentiles, are children of Abraham because we believe. Abraham believed in righteousness And righteousness was reckoned to him by faith when he believed, and likewise we Christians do the same thing, and so righteousness is reckoned to us by faith, so therefore we are children of Abraham. And God can raise up from stones Gentile believers, he doesn't need you Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, maybe that's so, could be. Whatever he meant, he was letting them hold it, and he was saying, look, I want fruit. I don't want words. I don't want birthrights. I don't want genealogies. I want fruits. What kind of fruit? Fruits keeping with repentance. Remember, repentance is a change of mind and a change of life. It means acting in accordance with your newfound spiritual humility. Fruit, not just empty words. Now, this idea, I told you I was going to give you a quote of how repentance is tied, tied up with salvation. Here's Acts chapter 26, verse 20. But Paul kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles. So this is Paul's preaching method now all over the place. Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, Jews, Gentiles, everywhere he said, what did he say? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now you could say that, well, the repentance is just believing and then the performing deeds appropriate to repentance is what follows after your repentance and salvation. I realize that. But it sounds to me like he's saying, you know, when you tell somebody how to get saved, you should say, believe and repent from your deeds at the same time. And that seems to be the the common view these days, although I, I will tell you there's a lot of theological debate on that. You know, you got the free grace movement with Zane Hodges, former deceased Dallas Seminary professor. Then you got the Lordship Salvation people represented by the evangelical pope. John MacArthur, then you got Wayne Grudem is somewhere right in between. I think Wayne Grudem's probably got it right. Wayne Grudem says that um, that basically salvation is faith and repentance, but you can't add obedience to it because then you're, you're talking about bringing, you got to be sanctified in order to be saved, you're mixing up sanctification and justification, and you're also preaching salvation by works. So it's a, it's a touchy theological issue, let's put it that way. But right here John, is he's telling them, I want you to believe, I want you to repent, and I want some deeds. I don't want just talk, empty talk. I want deeds. It has to do with salvation. All right, we'll stop it right here. We'll take it up with verse 10 in our next video. hope you enjoyed this.